Well, good morning. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Haggai. Give you a little bit of an advanced start. It's one of the minor prophets and tucked back in the end of the Old Testament. Might be a little difficult for some of you to find. I say that because I've never asked anybody how their personal devotions were going, and somebody said, Hey, I want to tell you what I've been learning out of the book of Haggai this morning in my personal devotions. I've just never encountered that. So sometimes I think the book of Haggai is overlooked, and even some of the minor prophets. We know all about Jonah and different, and different other minor prophets. But this morning I want to take a look into this little book, and I'm going to start by giving you the message, really. Because as you look into Haggai chapter 1, you will see that Haggai's message to the people of Israel was simply this. Consider your ways. And so this morning, as we look into the book of Haggai, I want you to prepare your heart right now to do some self-reflecting and to consider your ways about the topic that we'll be discussing this morning. All right? And so if you're there in Haggai chapter 1, say amen. 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 Okay. Now, before we get into the message, I do want to take just a moment to uh, introduce my family to you. Dr. Marriott already did that uh, for the most part. But I have one regret this morning, Dr. Marriott. When I was getting dressed, I was in my sock drawer, and I uh, was debating on which socks I should wear. And I had this really cool pair of Old Bay seasoning socks with crabs all over them that my daughter bought me because I grew up on the eastern shore of Maryland, and I love blue crabs. And she got this for me, and it would look good with these pants, but I decided to defer and be a little more conservative this, this morning, so I did not wear my blue crab socks, and I really regret that now, because I would, there would have been nothing better than to get up here and do one of these numbers and have those socks on right now. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, I did not wear them. As you see there in the picture, everybody in that picture except for me is either an alumnus of Maranatha Baptist University or, or is intending to be. Chelsea's here in the audience, and she's working on her degree right now. But my son Trey is over there on the left, and then he graduated in 2019 from the nursing department, and he's currently serving in the United States Army. His wife, Amelia, was Amelia Johnson. Many of you may remember her, uh, and they've been married for almost five years now. And then this picture was taken last May. My daughter, Victoria, as uh, Dr. Marriott said, had the privilege and honor of uh, joining in union with Reagan Abbey, and Reagan graduated last year. Tori graduated in 21. And then, of course, Chelsea and my wife, Sherry, you've already met. And, brother, that is true. That is probably the best thing about our couple. I definitely married above my weight class. Uh, And uh, if some of you guys out there, you need to set your sights high and marry above your weight class because she has definitely been a blessing to me throughout the ministry and just to see uh, how the Lord has knit our hearts together and our family together um, and just the way that he has blessed us. And it's a privilege to be here. And as Dr. Marriott said, we did come from Westwood Baptist Church and Academy in Poplar Bluff, Missouri, where we were there for 24 years serving the Lord. And it was a big transition last summer, but we knew that the Lord was in it, and we were excited to come here and serve the Lord here at Maranatha Baptist University and to serve you as students. And while we were there, we got to do a lot of amazing things. Now, this is a picture from 2015 when we were able to take a group to Israel. You can see there we are uh, in the backdrop is the city of Jerusalem. And if you look closely at that picture, even though it was only eight years ago, you'll notice my wife has barely changed at all, but I have aged considerably in those eight years. And you may wonder what the reason for that is. Well, this is part of it right here. 
This is a group of over 50 senior saints that we had the privilege of taking to Israel. Now, how many youth ministries majors are here? You want to work with teenagers? Be proud. Raise it nice and high. Okay. I think there should be a requirement that before you work with teenagers, you have to work with senior saints. Because they will run you more ragging than any teenager ever will. And I could tell you several stories on this particular trip uh, going to Israel where this, all of this came from. Uh, one of those was a lady who, as we were waiting to board one of our connections to fly over to Israel, uh, the, the flight crew was coming onto the plane, and uh, she asked one gentleman, are you the pilot? And he stopped and said, yes, ma'am. And she, re- she asked him, were you out drinking last night? And he just had this baffled look on his face, and she said, you look a little hungover. He refused to fly the plane or to let us board. They had to call the, the uh, officer's He wanted to take a sobriety field test because he was so offended that she had said that to him. Before he would fly the plane, he wanted everybody to know that he was not drunk. And before we get on, that was just part of the start of our trip. And there were several, several other things that took place. Well, what I want to tell you about, and giving you the introduction here, and this all has a point, so bear with me. But when we got over to Israel, we stayed at some amazing places some kibbutz, some resorts, and we always had a really nice breakfast and a really nice dinner. It was a Mediterranean diet, and uh, many of the people on our trip really enjoyed it, but then there were other people on the trip that just did not care for it. My wife did not care for the Mediterranean diet. Uh, but when we were out and about, uh, going through the Holy Land, looking at different places, when it was time for lunch, the bus would stop, and we would go and get these falafel sandwiches, uh, little pita sandwiches. And, and when they would usually come uh, from a place like this. These little storefronts are all over the place in Israel. And the falafel pita sandwich is to Israel what tacos are in Mexico. So if you've ever been to Mexico, the taco stands are everywhere. Well, these, these falafel sandwiches are everywhere. And if you don't know what falafel is, it is a fried fritter. Kind of looks like a hush puppy. made, But it's made out of chickpeas. Now... It's, it's different, and if you want to get adventurous, you can have some shawarma added into the pita, and the shawarma is mutton or, or, or lamb, which has a different taste as well, and it was unique, but after about three days of eating this for lunch, because they took us there every day for lunch or some different stand, uh, when the bus would pull over, I would hear this audible, Ugh. I mean, there were people on the bus now, understand from southeast Missouri, these folks, they would eat frog legs, they would eat crawdads, they would eat alligator tail, but they could not stomach one more bite of falafel. And so as we get off the bus, I hear this murmuring and this complaining. I started to feel a little bit like maybe what Moses experienced in leading the people out of the, the, to the promised land. And it's like, Lord, we got to do something. Some, I mean, literally, some of these people were not eating lunch because they just, they were done. And so as I was trying to contemplate how, how we could best serve these people, lo and behold, it was like uh, just harps began to play when we looked up and looked down the street because there was a McDonald's. I'm not kidding. You know, it was, uh, it was and the people, when they saw it, it was like God had just delivered manna from heaven. <laughs> and so, you know, who wouldn't want to all beef patty, special sauce, lettuce, kosher cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed bun, right? 
And so we were able to take them there, and they were able to get some food and some sustenance, and uh, uh, we had a really, really great time. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, I highly encourage you to do it. But, you know, what was amazing is that here we are halfway around the world, and there are these golden arches. It's probably one of the most recognizable symbols internationally when it comes to commerce. I would probably argue one of the the ones that might be more well-known would be Coca-Cola, because you find Cokes everywhere throughout the world. But when I was considering how this McDonald's, here it is halfway around the world, and we're able to go there and to, you know, partake of this food, uh, I really began to uh, just think about the impact that McDonald's has had um, on so many people. I mean, how many of you, uh, raise your hand if you had McDonald's this week. Just raise it nice and high. Be proud. And don't worry about the judging. No judging going on here. Okay. How many of you have had it since uh, this semester started? Okay. That would include the people that raised their hands before. Keep it nice and high. All right. Now, just out of curiosity, how many people have never had anything from McDonald's in your entire life? Is there anybody here like that? If you are, I'm not trying to embarrass you, but stand so we can see you in, in all. <laughs> Okay, nobody, everybody here has just given testimony that they have partaken in some product from McDonald's. And the McDonald's story is truly fascinating. When you look at it, I'll just give it to you briefly. In 1937, two brothers, Dick and Maurice McDonald, started this drive-in restaurant in Pasadena, California. In 1940, they relocated it to San Bernardino, about 50 miles away from uh, Los Angeles, I believe, and And their sales just skyrocketed, $200,000 annually in sales. That's a lot of money in 1940. And then in 1948, they saw some things coming, and they streamlined their menu, and they focused specifically on hamburgers. That's where this this started to develop. And they implemented this speedy service system. It was kind of an assembly line back in the kitchen. And their goal was to serve everybody within 30 seconds. And they got very, very good at it and accomplished it. And as a result, by the 1950s, the early 1950s, their annual revenue hit $350,000. But they had a problem. They were very good at innovating. They were very good at managing. They were very good at customer service. They were very good at being singular restaurant owners. But as they tried to expand their business, they failed at marketing. They, they couldn't figure out how to get this new concept of fast food and this new product out to more people. And so in 1954, they partnered with a gentleman by the name of Ray Kroc. Now, Ray Kroc came in, and he had a vision for McDonald's that far exceeded the brother's vision, and he started working with him, and under his leadance and under his guidance, uh, they went to 100 stores. And then by 1961, they were up to 500 stores. And in the process of growing McDonald's across the nation, Ray Kroc bought out the brothers in 1961 for $2.7 million. That's a whole lot of money. And under Ray Kroc's leadership, McDonald's expanded globally and internationally, and Ray Kroc became the fast food mogul of the world. How did he do that? He did it by establishing priorities in his life. And when a reporter interviewed Ray Kroc and asked him, Mr. Kroc, what do you believe in? He made this statement. He said, I believe in God, my family, and McDonald's. Okay? That sounds like a pretty good statement, doesn't it? It's always good to have God, 
as your first priority. But Mr. Kroc did not stop there. He continued to go on, and he completed the statement this way. When I get to the office, I reverse the order. What was he saying? He was saying that although I recognize and will affirm verbally that God deserves the preeminence in my life, pragmatically, the way I live my life, I push him to the end of the list. Mr. Kroc had his priorities out of order. Now, when it comes to prioritizing our life, Stephen Covey made this statement that I think is pretty powerful. He said, you have to decide what your highest priorities are and have the courage pleasantly, smilingly, non-apologetically to say no to other things. And the way you do that is by having a bigger yes burning inside. The enemy of the best is often the good. Pay attention to that last part of the statement because we're going to be seeing it over and over this morning as we look into the scriptures. The enemy of the best is often the good. But you see, Ray Kroc's bigger yes that Stephen Covey was talking about was McDonald's. It was bigger than his desire to prioritize his family, his desire to prioritize God. So let me ask you this question, and it's not a rhetorical question. I invite you to answer out loud. Is McDonald's a good thing? You've got some mixed responses there. It depends on your, what kind of diet you're on and how nutrition conscious you are. And that might be debatable. If McDonald's is a good thing. But let me ask it this way. Is it intrinsically a bad thing as a restaurant, as a business? No. But is it better than Ray's relationship with his family and his relationship with God? I don't think so. So this morning, what is the bigger yes burning inside of you? What is the dream that establishes your priorities? You see, I believe that many of us have the same problem as Mr. Kroc. We pay lip service to God, and we put him at the top of what we recognize our priorities need to be, but when we live out our everyday life, we push him to the bottom of the list. Now, this isn't some new phenomenon that we as Christians have recently encountered in the 21st century. It's really a question that's been pondered by God's people throughout the ages. And the question is this, are we going to give God and his work priority in our lives or our selfish ambition and fleshly desires the standards by which life's priorities are to be determined? This right here is exactly where we find the nation of Israel in Haggai chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles open, I want you to look at the book of Haggai this morning, and we're going to start by reading verses 1 and 2 as as we begin to consider the scriptures today. Haggai chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house shall be built. Now, to understand what's going on here, we have to understand a little bit about the context or the setting of what is taking place. In the year 586 B.C., we have the
Okay, all the rest of my notes are gone. So that's interesting. So well, here we go. There it is. All right. Throw it down and maybe it'll work some more. Right. In 586 B.C., we have the fall of Judah, the temples destroyed, the people were taken away into captivity. And they're in captivity uh, for all these years, 70, 70 years. And, in, and a little bit later, in 539 B.C., Cyrus the Great comes along and he captures Babylon. And when he captures Babylon, he implements this practice of setting free those people that the Babylonians had enslaved. So the exile is, a, is ending, it ends in phases, and it takes a while for, for all the people to start migrating back to where they came from. But it, he ends in the exile, and he permits the Jews to return to Jerusalem for a specific purpose, and that purpose is to rebuild the temple. Now, when the Israelites returned from captivity, to, from this Babylonian captivity back to the land, they return with great anticipation. They're excited. They're getting to go home and to reclaim the land that God had given them. And as they get back, they start to get settled and they start to gather the materials and they start to rebuild the temple as was the purpose of their return. And as they're rebuilding the temple, they get the foundation done. And as they get the foundation done, they start to encounter a lot of opposition from the people who live there in the area. And there is even, if you go to Ezra chapters 4 and 5, you will, uh, 3 and 4, you will find a description of this opposition that's taking place where the local uh, inhabitants are writing letters protesting them building the temple, saying, look, if you let these people rebuild, they're going to be rebellious. They're going to not pay you taxes. They're not going to do what you tell them to do. Just go back and look at the history, and you will find this to be the case. And, of course, some of the rulers have changed there in Persia as this process is taking place. And so when they go back and research the books, they find out that, true, you know, Israel in the past has been a very, very powerful nation that, that other nations had paid tribute to. And uh, they had a very, very strong history. And so the, the work is ordered to be stopped. And the people, instead of continuing to obey, obey God, they've had all this opposition. It seems very, very difficult to keep moving forward. They decide that they are going to pause the build, building and maintain the status quo. And they begin to realign their priorities to put themselves first and the work of God lasts. So here in the, this book, and in the book of Zechariah, who is a contemporary of Haggai, we see that these prophets are calling upon the people to stop focusing on their own economic well-being and to complete the temple that God had called them to complete, to do the work that God had called them to do to keep his work, to keep him as a priority in their life. So, but they, they decided and rationalized in their mind that they were going to put that on hold. And as they put on hold the priority that God gave them in their life, it created a vacuum where other things started to come in and to take their time and to take their attention. And so here in Haggai chapter 1, we see that God's people are guilty of neglecting priorities. And in verses 2 through 4, the Lord accuses the people of sin in this area because he accuses them of neglecting the temple. And again, I've lost a slide there somehow. So I don't know if anybody in the sound booth can help me out, but something's going. There it is. No, still, still not there. So 
My apologies, I'm not sure what's going on. But when we look at this, the Lord is accusing uh, the people of neglecting the temple. And so look in verse 2. It says, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. What was going on is that the people were placing what was good over what is best. Let me say that again. The people were placing what was good over what is best. Let me ask you this question, and and feel free to respond. Is there anything wrong with building a house? No. Is there anything wrong with owning a house? No. What was the problem, though? They'd focused all their time, their resources, and their energy on building their own homes that they had neglected the priority that God had given him. They neglected making him first and building his temple. You know, it's easy for us to recognize in, in life where people have priorities misplaced, um, but it's often hard for us to recognize in our own lives when we have priorities misplaced. I heard of the story from the Super Bowl. How many Kansas City Chiefs fans are here? Okay, all right. I thought they'd be a little more proud about it right now. How many Philadelphia Eagles fans are here? Oh, okay, they're, they're, okay we'll leave that alone. Anyway, there was, uh, there was a story of the Super Bowl where this, uh, this real uh, fanatic, he was a fan. I mean, he, he, he was there, and he was all excited, and he goes and he finds his seat, and there are two seats beside him, and there's this lady sitting over in the one seat all by herself. And he was you know, figuring somebody would show up to join her later, but as the game progressed, nobody showed up to join her. And so he just couldn't stand it anymore, and he asked her, are you here all by yourself? And, and she said yes. And she said, well, what about this seat? He said, well, that was my, my husband's seat, but he, he passed away. I said, oh, I'm, I'm so sorry. And the game continued to go on, and he just it kept gnawing at him, kept bothering him. And so he turns again, isn't there somebody in your family that would have been glad to come with you and enjoy the game and take a seat? And her response to him was yes, but they thought it was more important to go to the funeral. <laughs> so what was wrong there? You know? She had wrong priorities in her life. And sometimes we can let things that are good take priority over what is best. And so the Lord is accusing Israel of neglecting the temple. The Lord is also questioning their priorities. Look again in verses 3 and 4. The word of the Lord came, uh, the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet saying, It is time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie waste. Now, if you'll look there, in the King James, it uses the word sealed or sealed houses. Other versions you may look at will have it as paneled houses. And I was curious as to what that meant. And so I I did some study looking into that word. And what that word sealed houses or paneled houses means is that, I mean, these houses had ornate woodwork. If you go to the book of Kings and the book of Jeremiah, you will find descriptions of these types of houses, houses that were built by kings that had sealed houses. So when we talk about these people building sealed houses, these are not huts. These are not thatch roofs. These are not, you know, some uh, clay tile roofs. These are, these are ornate homes with, with cedar roofs that have all this intricate woodwork. So these people were not just building homes. They were building these glorious homes. And is there anything wrong with living in a really nice house? No, there's nothing wrong with living in a really nice house. But again, the people of Israel were doing these types of things in place of doing what God had called them to do and to 
establish the priorities in their life of building his house and building his temple. And, you know, I think today we are very uh, guilty of the same thing. We are negligent at times in keeping God and his priorities the priority in our life. Um, someone once calculated, and I, if you can find this, on this and bring it up on the screen, it would be helpful, but someone once calculated how a typical lifespan of 70 years is spent. Do we have that? There it is. Now, this is a little outdated, and I tried to find a, an updated version of this, and I found bits and pieces everywhere, but uh, for the most part, as I looked into updated statistics, these statistics have not gotten better over the years. They've gotten worse. So I just want you to, to contemplate this for a moment, but in a typical lifespan of 70 years, you will spend 23 years of your life sleeping. Now, some of your professors may argue that you spend more time than that sleeping because you're sleeping in their class as well as sleeping in your bed. But regardless, you spend a good third of your life sleeping. You'll spend 16 years working, eight years watching TV, six years eating, six years traveling, four and a half years in leisure, four years being sick. That's depressing. <laughs> Two years getting dressed. Now, that's an average. Uh, some of you will take a lot less time to get dressed, and some of you probably take a lot more time getting dressed, but we'll leave that alone. But here's the interesting fact. On average, in a 70-year lifespan, you'll spend half a year, six months, focused on the things of God. That's, that's kind of uh, disturbing. To realize, again, that the things of God, in this list of how time is spent, we see that the priority of focusing on anything to do with God is at the bottom of the list. And so God's people, I would argue, are many times negligent in keeping God and his priorities first in their life. And that God's people have wrong priorities. Again, when we look into this book, I think it's fascinating. Oftentimes when the prophets would go and preach to the nation of Israel, it was because they were in, had fallen into the sin of idolatry where they were worshiping false gods and false idols and they were involved in immoral activity. And the prophets would go and they would preach and they would bring this message of repentance. You need to repent and get right. Turn back to God. I mean, I can think of the book of Hosea. You know, that his whole life is an object lesson of the people going a whoring after other gods. And so we see this message often preached by the prophets. But when Haggai stands up to preach, he's not preaching against some uh, Baal worship or some other false idol worship. He's preaching to these people about things that in and of themselves are good. Everything they were, nothing they were doing in this list that we see in Haggai was bad in and of itself. He was preaching against things that in and of themselves were good, but they had taken priority over the thing that was best, and that was worshiping God and putting his work first. And as a result, they had made these good things in their lives essentially idols. And when you look down through here, for sake of time, we're going to just look down here a little bit. If you'll pick up with me in verse number uh, 6. It says, ye have sown much and bring in little. Is there anything wrong with working hard? Yeah, answer me. Is there anything wrong with working hard? Does the word of God command us that we should work? Yes. Okay. Ye, but you bring in little, ye eat. Is there anything wrong with eating? No. Some of us enjoy it more than others. 
but there's nothing wrong with eating. But you have not enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is no more. Is there anything wrong with providing food and raiment for your family? No. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put it into a bag with holes. Is there anything wrong with exercising financial uh, wisdom and planning and saving up for the future? No. Does the word of God give us principles on how and why we should do that? Yes. So none of these things in and of themselves are wrong. But again, they allow them to place what God had established as the priority for them in their life. And I think that we often do that as well. You know, what are some of the priorities that we should have in our life? How about your daily worship with the Lord? How, how about your, how's your prayer life? And this isn't rocket science today that I'm giving you. These aren't some uh, uh, theological principles that you have to mine out real hard. These are basic things that the scriptures talks to us about, about how we are supposed to prioritize our worship with the Lord. I mean, why were we created? We were created to what, have fellowship with him and to worship him. That's our whole purpose. That's our whole, the whole reason we're here. And yet when it comes to the simple acts of private worship, of reading our Bible, of cultivating a, a, a prayer life, we neglect those things because we will often say we just don't have the time. I mean, I'm so busy. I have all of these classes you know, over here and all these professors give me all these homework and projects over here. And I have this society meeting and I'm involved in this activity and I have to work to pay my school bill. And when we add up all the time of the day, there's just not enough time to put God as a priority in our life. And we tend to fall into this rut of, of saying like the children of Israel did. We rationalize that now it's not the time. And, you know, it's easy even in a Bible college setting where you're focusing on studying the word of God and preparing yourself for ministry, whether that be vocational ministry as a pastor, evangelist, a Christian school teacher, or it be a ministry in the secular setting where you are a Christian who is who is representing the Lord Jesus Christ and whatever vocation that God has called you to. We have this concept sometimes when we're in college that I will be that kind of Christian when I start my career. I'll do it later. It's not, it's not time right now. And it, as you read through the book of Haggai, and again, for time's sake today, we're going to have to speed along you will see that these people were working hard and yet they were missing God's blessing in their life. And I just challenge you, as, as Haggai was telling the people, to consider your ways. Are you operating in the flesh as you're here preparing for ministry? Are you working hard, but it seems like it's just all oh, so difficult? Are you neglecting that relationship, that priority in your life with God Almighty? If you continue to read down through the chapter, you'll find an amazing thing happens in verse number 12, and we're going to wrap it up with this. It says, Then Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, they did what? Obey the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Lord. Then spake Haggai the Lord's messenger, and the Lord's message unto the people, saying, I am with you, saith the Lord. 
And the people stirred up, and the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Sheltiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and did the work in the house of the Lord of hosts their God. Oftentimes when the prophets preached and proclaimed God's word, the people rejected it. But here in Haggai, we have that the people heard the message that the prophet was preaching, to consider their ways, to make God's work and God the priority in their life. And they repented and they, it says they obeyed what God had told them to do. And when they obeyed what God told them to do, the Lord began to do a work in their life. And he began to, uh, we see later, we see that their blessings of the Lord come back into their life because of their obedience and doing the work of the Lord and putting God first. Uh, and while these promises in the Old Testament, many of them were given directly to the nation of Israel, I realize that, but I think there's a strong principle throughout Scripture that if you obey what the Lord's told you to do, you can expect God's blessing in your life. I don't know about you, but I want God's blessing in my life. I don't want to try to do the work of the Lord, the work of the ministry, and the power of my own flesh. But we can allow ourselves to do that as we allow good things to take the preeminence over the best thing. And we neglect making God and his work a priority in our lives. Consider your ways. Don't be like Ray Kroc. Don't leave the doors of this institution Proclaiming that God, you know God should have priority and sovereignty in your life, but practically you go out and you live your life in such a way where you push him to the bottom of the list. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that you've given us, and we thank you for the opportunity to serve you. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to consider our ways and ever keep you at the forefront of our priorities, Lord, as we We learn to walk with you, to fellowship with you, and Lord, to serve you no matter what vocation you called us to. Bless us as we go forth from here today and use us for your honor and your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.